0: When I teach on something in particular, sometimes I get a little tunnel vision, and uh, especially when I'm in a hurry, like I will be by the end today. So uh, the, the the couple of things I want you to hear. One, uh, the the gather again thing that that we're a part of as a church, encouraging people to get back to church. Make sure you understand, especially those of you who are at home uh, and watching or watching later, um, There there's a no way. It's not our goal or our job or anything like that. To encourage people who are in a quarantine situation to come to church, like that's—if you're not coming to church because of concerns about COVID or something like that, or I mean, any sickness like that, no, no, you're you're good. That's not what we. What the idea here is: those of us who are somehow managing to make it to the movies, and make it to the gym, or make it to the store, and can't make it to church—that's who we're challenging. Okay, it's time to get back in the habit of getting to church, of being back involved. I would say for all of us, we need to make it an ambition to be gathering together with the believers, make it a topic of prayer that we will be able to gather together, that that's our longing, is that we could be back together when we cannot. And so um, I want to encourage you guys with that and with that one. And then also with last week's sermon, um, man, so I want to really encourage you you, especially if you walked away discouraged from that sermon on marriage. And there's a couple of ways in particular that I know that that could easily have happened um, maybe you're asking, can God redeem the parts of my story that don't fit the way He told the story? And so, what I mean is, like, um, so what if cohabitation was a part of my past, or or what if I'm, what if people are living together now, sitting in the room and, and living together and not married, or or to say, gosh, I'm a single mom or a single dad and I've got kids, but I don't get to give them the example. Of a marriage or I'm married in a really hard marriage and I don't get to give the example of a healthy marriage to my children or to my neighbors or, or whatever. Um, so a couple of things I would tell you. One, this is, this is one of the great advantages of being a part of a community of believers is that, is that when we're lacking something in our own lives or in our own marriage, this is what discipleship is. It's why it's vital that we bring other people into, the, into our families to see these things lived out. Um, in a healthy relationship, and I think that would include in a healthy church, you're allowed to ask for what you want. You may not always get what you want, but you're always allowed to ask for what you want to say, man, this would this would really bless our family or this would help us, or can you help me find this or help me? and And we would love to to be a part of that and to encourage you. God God, Jesus Christ sent his disciples out in twos for a reason, um, because we need one another in in our lives. That's there. Um, and so it's it's important to remember, Um, Look look at what 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7 says. This is a a fascinating passage when Paul has picked up on that in Corinth there's apparently some fighting going on, um, and that people are doing, and by the way, we would never do this today, right? We would never assign a human and say, I'm one of these people, right? We would never say, like, I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Armenian, because that would be ridiculous. Luckily, we got rid of all this long ago, so... But what's, happened, what's happening back then is people were saying, "Oh, I'm. You know what? I, I know. I get why you like Peter, but I'm kind of a Paul guy myself. I like I like Paul, and other people are like, no, no, Apollos, and we don't even know really who Apollos was. I mean, we have some some legends about him and who he might have been, but he didn't like he write any. He didn't write anything in the Bible that we that made it in, but unless he wrote Hebrews. So, but look at what Paul is saying, His Paul's response to this issue of people going, "No, I like Peter better. I'm a, no, I'm a Paul. What then is Apollos? What is Paul?" just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. It is a great universal understanding in the Christian life that we just do our best we do the best with what we have. We do the best with what we've been given. We fight and to learn and grow and submit to Him and hopefully have a stronger and stronger faith and a better and better example and a stronger and stronger testimony. In the end, we do the best we can, but only God can make something grow. And another part of this that I want you to remember is no matter what is a part of your past or a part of your present, just keep in mind that Christ can and does redeem everything. There is nothing, I want you to hear this clearly, there is nothing that Christ cannot redeem. In Revelations, what we hear about him is he makes the proclamation, Behold, I make all things new. All right, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Did you throw anything? John, you're not supposed to be eating it. It's not there for you to eat. It's there for, it's there for Lori to throw. <laughs> exactly. That's right. You can't just throw it then. like that, that might be bad. Okay, so we come at this passage, rightfully, all of us do, with fear. Um, why do we feel, feel particularly strange? In fact, here's what I want you to ask yourself right now in your heart. Why do you feel particularly strange about me teaching it? Um, if you don't, then you're one of the weird ones in the room. I certainly do. A husband teaching wives how they ought to behave. That's what I'm about to do. And his wife is in the room now. Not, I didn't, she wasn't even here for the first service, so i got to warm up, right? This is understandably challenging to us, and I'm going to very quickly try to look at some of the cultural issues. I'm going to go through this quickly. You may have to go back and look at this more, come back and look at it again later. But I want you to get a feel for how hard it is in our culture today to engage in this conversation, especially this way. So quickly, we start with a concept that is very popular now called expressive individualism. No one but me can say anything about me. Can we get the there we go. expressive individuals. No one but me can say anything about me, but everyone must respect what I say about me as being true. There is no outside source that can speak authoritatively into my identity but all outside sources must accept me as the final authority in the identity that I express. This is, this is an important tenet in our culture today, one of the leading tenets moving us. Second, there are social theories that fall under the heading of critical theories. Of course, the one we all know about is critical race theory. I'm not com- commenting on that in particular. Just to understand, generally, critical theory is an approach to social sciences that focuses on critique of cultures and history to reveal and challenge power structures. The preconception of critical theories is that essentially all traditional systems and structures, think governments, think economics, think religion, all of those exist primarily or exclusively to put and protect power in the hands of certain populations. Third, There's the tendency called identity politics. Alliances based on our identifiers, religion, race, sex, etc. These alliances are what form our political alliances, not loyalty to party, not loyalty to ideals, but these identities. In some cases, what is being taught is that this is how it should be to the degree that it isn't. This is what should unite us and nothing else. Finally, we have social justice theories that say that these alliances created among people who adopt certain identifiers cannot find justice if they are not part of the power structure. And the best or only way to bring justice is to bring down those traditional structures and systems and to fail to support that thought is to deny the existence of the expressive individualist and to continue to oppress those the ancient or at least traditional systems did not advantage. Anyone who is a recipient of these systemic advantages is, by definition, an oppressor. These are four basic tenets that are some of the four main principles moving our culture progressively right now. Every single one of these is offended by numerous things we do every Sunday morning and is certainly magnified by the thought, of a husband teaching wives how to behave on a Sunday morning. So all this asks the question, why do we feel strange or even trod upon when a man, a husband no less, teaches this passage? Part of it is because we've been taught to teach this way. We've been trained to teach this way. We've been taught to teach, to, to think that way. We've been taught to think that that would be bad because I'm not representative enough or I'm, not, I'm too much a part of the oppressive. Could you get any more of the patriarchy than me? Right? Right? This is part of the system that we're fighting against. Here's why. You've seen it abused. You've experienced it being abused, these concepts being abused. You've experienced that. And so you have a natural tendency to kind of have begun shy at the thought of this thing happening. Totally understandable for all of us. We've probably all seen that. You also intuitively think, here's the main one, you intuitively think it implies that I think I'm worthy to teach this. That somehow I'm the special guy. I'm the guy with the pointed hat. I'm the guy with the microphone. I'm the guy who gets to tell everybody what they're supposed to do. And then I think that, by being up here, gives me that right, or that right is why I'm up here, which would be even worse. Either way, understand, that's part of the problem. You intuitively think that, and I have news for you. Um, I don't think I'm worthy to teach wives. More, I don't think I'm worthy to teach husbands. I'm not worthy to teach men. Or women, I don't merit teaching people with dark skin or light skin. I don't merit teaching rich people or poor people. I'm not worthy to teach oppressed or oppressors. That gets even worse than that. The Apostle Peter did not believe he merited teaching this stuff either. He didn't think he was worthy of it. We are all counting on this idea that all of this Scripture falls under the inspiration of Almighty God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the minds and hearts and hands of His people. He alone is worthy to teach us. He alone merits our attention and our obedience. Alone. Apparently, by the way, those of us who are teachers will answer to Him for our arrogance to be willing to teach. Um, James 3 tells us that He will judge teachers more strictly than the rest. I'm sure that's going to be fun. Uh, He alone is this. As Christians and as rational people, we believe that there are external truths that don't depend on me or you. That's what we're looking for when we come here on a Sunday morning or when we go to a Bible study or discipleship group. Hopefully that's what you're looking for in your friendships and in your relationships is people who can help us engage with and, and, and learn from these eternal and thus external truths. There are things that are true whether we know it or like it or believe it. They're not dependent upon us. They are objective and external and unchanging. And that's what we're looking for. When you come here, you're looking to try to hear from God, not me. You're trying to hear from God, not whoever your Sunday school teacher is or your life group leader. You want to hear from God, not them. Our goal is to try to be what Paul says is just a servant through whom God is working. My goal in preaching is to unpack the truths as we find them, not to come up with any new ones. That's what we're trying to do. This is this is a great lesson I learned, um, if if no other place, if, especially talking to husbands, real quick. <clears throat> a few years ago, reading one of Stormy Omardian's books, um, in Christian publishing, if something hits, they have to make every version of it. So there's a power of a praying kind of everything now, right, um, out there as a book. But reading Power of a Praying Husband, um, I don't remember anything else from the book, but this one sentence, and I would have bought the book ten times over for this sentence. Um, in it, there's a model prayer for husbands, and I'm reading it and trying to pray it. And one of the lines says, Lord, I pray that my wife will hear from you, comma, not me. This was a conviction on, on me. Because um, I realized at that point I had spent a lot of time in prayer asking God that Ginger would hear from me. That she would understand me better. That she would hear what I was trying to say. That she would listen to what I was trying to explain. <laughs> That's right. That this is a, they will go, I don't, I've I realized I had spent a ton of time doing that and a ton of energy and I was so convicted at the moment of the, of the absurdity of asking that when God is speaking to Ginger that he should somehow give her my insights. He's my intercessor, in other words. Yeah, this is. This is not a good attitude. And what I realized, I was so humbled by how broken and ridiculous and adolescent my heart had been about this to go, oh Lord, please never let her hear from me. Never, never, never. As long as she has access to you, why would I want her to hear from, I mean, that's, I mean, all the, all the motives for hearing from me then would all be bad, right? They would all be selfish. And so going, okay, I don't. this is a big deal. This is why we're here. I pray that on Sundays, I want you to hear from God, not me. Uh, that's, that's the prayer for all of us who teach here, should be, that we would say that. Even the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, if I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. And that's Paul speaking. He didn't think that he merited being listened to or followed unless he was following Christ. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right, we've got to start with the word likewise. So what does this refer back to? This is an interesting question. What does it refer back to? Um, in some ways, certainly the entire book where we've been up till now, look at what Christ has done, look at what that means about you. Now, follow him in this, likewise, you follow him in this, certainly, but the servants passage doesn't begin with likewise. It doesn't say likewise, servants. So I think there must be something in the teaching to servants that then, that then Peter is saying, like what I said to the servants, wives, likewise. So I think it's 221 is the best bet. For to this you have been called, he's speaking to the servants, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. In other words, Christ has given the servants an example this is what it looks like. Likewise, wives, Christ has given you an example, and you need to follow it. Next week, when Craig Langemeyer is up here, he's going to show how it says, likewise, husbands. In other words, you've got a calling too, and is to follow my example. The, the example from Christ that, Christ that Peter is pointing out that he wants wives to follow is this word, Submit or be subject. Now, this is a scary word for us. This word has been so abused in the church by so many narcissistic and even psychopathic pastors and so many abusive husbands in the past that we're terrified of it. Now, we should be terrified of it, but that's not why. I mean, we should be terrified of it because God's calling us to something that is terrifying, um, that is transcendent of ourselves, more than we could accomplish in any way. We are Jaded. I'm going to come back to that. We are jaded to this very concept, um, and the world has called to led us there, and so has the church in too many times. I think Peter is saying that because Christ gave us an example, wives should understand how to follow His example within the family system. There's some radical teachings in this passage for its time, but they aren't what you think. Mark and I read my, my son Mark and I were researching this week um, some of these ideas, and it turns out there are lots and lots and lots of ancient household orders taught from this era. Lots of them. They aren't uncommon. It was not hard to find them. The nature of the household orders, we found instructions from Demosthenes, Xenophon, Aristotle, Josephus, Homer, and and numerous others who wrote family order training. Each of them makes it clear that the husbands are, this is significant, each of these taught that the husband is the center of the home. And as the center of the home, they were to rule over their families, and the family was to obey them. This was the idea created by taught by every essentially every one of these that we could find. In fact, most of them taught that the reason the husband was the authority was because that men, not husbands, men are by nature superior to women and children. That was how Demosthenes and Xenophon and Josephus and others, that was the principle. So the guiding principle was, listen, it's obvious, men are basically superior, so in a family system, husbands have to be the center of the family and everyone has to obey them. That was the teaching of the time. That was the standard understanding of the time. These family systems were in place when Paul wrote and when Peter wrote for most of the world. Wives, slaves, and children all submitted to the master of the house. So Peter and Paul make commentary about how this is to be lived out within the kingdom. What does it look like for a Christ follower who happens to be a wife? What does it look like for her to follow as a wife? To follow Christ as a wife looks like what? Well, the answer is different. Their commentary is different from those ancient teachings. How? Because she obeys and submits? No, that was the rule everywhere. So then, what's different? The idea of submission. We're going to come back to that and really unpack that. But how? How is it different? Number one, why she submits. In fact, you could almost say, who is submitting? Here's what I mean. Um, she chooses to submit in this passage. This is a big deal. The impression of so many of these other teachers that we saw, so many of these others, was that the action of submission actually belonged to the husband, meaning this: "Husbands, submit your wives." That was the language in most of them. Listen to what Dionysius, um, around the birth of Christ, revealed about the founding laws of Rome. Here's one of them: Both the married women, as having no other refuge, to conform themselves listen to this, to conform themselves entirely to the temper of her husbands. And the husband to rule their wives as necessary and inseparable possessions. In other words, husbands, rule over your wives. That was the main language of these types of passages in the other writings. Husbands, rule over your wives. The command was to him, not her. It's not wives submit, it is husbands rule. And here we have Jesus as the model. He has this ultimate cosmic power, and he is also a sacrificial lamb. He is a servant king. This creates a different model. Ask yourself, in the world of the Apostle Paul, in the world of the Apostle Peter, who is the center of the family? Christ is. Not the husband. Next week, Craig's going to unpack the passage that Peter says here in a minute that we're not going to get to today, but he's going to unpack this, that points out Christ is the center of the family. In fact, there is no authority structure outside of the family that matters between men and women. That's not the deal. He's going to show out, no, no, the wives, they are co-heirs. They are equals to you in the kingdom. Everybody reports directly to Jesus. That's how that works within the kingdom. So that's one, why she submits... And then who she submits to, who is superior in the Christian faith. Who is the superior one? It's not men. It is Christ. Only Him. Who is the center of the household? Christ is. This is a clear in each of the passages in the New Testament. The responsibility for obedience to Christ for her part in the family order is the wife. It is not the husband who is supposed to make the wife obey is not the husband who's supposed to rule over his wife. In fact, think of the significance of this, especially now that you know that was the model of these passages all throughout history d- during this time and what these men would have read and grown up with all their lives. Imagine this, it is significant that whenever the New Testament addresses the subject of Christian marriage, every single time, it always uses the same verb that is here, hupotasso, which we translate to submit, every single time. At the same time, it never commands the husband to rule over her. And especially you understand that the main teaching of this era was husbands rule over your wives, to understand that to teach wives submit to your husbands was a little bit subversive. In fact, that's her job. And notice, it's not just women and men. This is not a male-female passage. If you go back and look at the passage, this is not about men and women. It is about husbands and wives... Because notice, it says, who is the wife supposed to hupotasso to? Who is she supposed to submit to? What does it say? Am I looking? Her own husband. Not somebody else's husband. Not other men. There's no authority structure there. There's no authority structure of male over female. The authority structure taught in this passage is exclusively husband and wife. That's it. Your own husband. One preacher we looked at pointed out that the Bible calls for male authority to be present in two realms only. Two only. The family and arguably the church. Now there's obviously debate in both realms for this teaching, obviously. But this is a, those are the only two you can even make an argument for. There is no argument for male dominance in any other aspect of the New Testament teaching. None. Except maybe those two. Still not about superiority of the man nor the superiority of the husband. Does authority, ask yourself this, does authority or submission, when I submit to someone, does that imply they are superior? I don't think so. I don't see it. In fact, it would make no sense when you consider that God the Son submits to God the Father. Jesus is not inferior to the Father. In fact, I bet if you went back in time and you watched Jesus with Mary and Joseph, you would discover that the Creator of heaven and earth through whom and by whom and forth in whom all things were made, submitted to Mary and Joseph, his parents. Submission does not equal a lack of power. It does not equal a lack of significance. None of those type of things. So we're still going to have to unpack the word submission, aren't we? Because we're still, we're still stumbling. Every time I use the word, you're still stumbling over it. You're still like, bleh, 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 gross. Every time I do it, right? So let's understand this word. Hupotasso is the Greek. Hupo just means Under. It's just, that's all that the word means, under, okay? Tasso is a more, a more fascinating word. And the two words put together, hupo tasso. Tasso is a military term, um, almost strictly a military term. And what it means is a position or a place or a mission or an appointment. So clearly, one way of understanding this passage, this, this word, hupo tasso, is the idea of sub, under, mitting, mission, sub mission, right? My mission is now subordinate to someone else's mission. That's not a bad understanding, but the problem is we've so jacked up this word in English. We have so destroyed it that everyone has this passive, pathetic, surrender, capitulation feel to it. Doesn't it? You have that feel? It's because we've abused it so badly. And so I usually use other words. Like My favorite is the word devoted. If this passage were to read, and it probably does more closely to modern English and the Greek, likewise, wives, devote yourself to your husband that would sound very different in our ears, even though it's probably the same meaning in the original, but we're, let's have some fun with it. It's a military term. To position yourself under organizationally or militarily. One author I looked at said, maybe we ought to start thinking of this term more militarily, since it's a military term. I like that. Likewise, wives, deploy yourselves on, def- on the behalf of your husband. That sounds better, right? To the warrior women, likewise, wives, array yourself for battle according to the sacrificial leadership of your husband. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound passive, does it? And yet that's almost certainly what the picture here is being created. It's, it's the picture of a soldier making the mission happen. And we think of those people as heroes, don't we? I mean, let's, hypothetically, if you had a handful of soldiers who had been warned that there was likely to be a terrorist attack at the entrance to the airport where they were, and the next morning they got up and posted themselves there in an effort to help and rescue as many people as possible, we would call those people heroes if they died, right? That is hupotasso. That's the very picture of it, of hupotasso. We forget that the, uh, the ultimate picture of hupotasso is soldiers, not weaklings, not inferior, not pathetic. In fact, the exact opposite. The ones who make things happen, the strength behind the military, that's hupotasso. There's nothing weak or pathetic about this concept. And I do believe these passages indicate an authority and responsibility structure, but that it transcends our culture. What it's for is a testimony. What it's for is a picture of Christ's submission. His example to us. He submitted Himself to the cross. And when we submit ourselves, which none of us as humans are good at, we are giving a principled picture. Just like when we lead sacrificially, we are giving a principled picture of Christ's love for His church. The structure is real, and either God knows best or He doesn't. This is hard for us. It's hard for us because we don't want God to give us this type of instruction. We don't want Him to guide us in these ways. It's tough for us. We want to run from this so badly. I do too, just so you'll know. I am so uncomfortable for wives to have to apply this. I'm especially uncomfortable for my wife to have to apply this because I know me. And I know I have in no way merited that type of responsibility. I barely can think of myself as an adult. Anybody else feel that, men? It's like when you think about yourself, you're like, uh... Fourteen, ish, <laughs> ish. It's the last time I felt like I knew what I was doing. We'd run for, the, and so the thought of going, yeah, my wife, God has created an authority structure in our home, and we get to figure out how to apply that. That's why there's not going to be a lot of application today directly. It's just teaching what the passage says. In each home, the exact application of this is going to be obviously quite different. But I think we are so jaded to this, so. Jaded means bored by continual indulgence. In other words, I'm over it. How many of you, that is your instinct when you read this passage? You read this verse and you're like, yeah, uh uh-huh, I'm over it. Thank you, I've heard it. Can we move on to something more interesting? I get it. you know that a jade, I had to look this up because I was like, a jade is a horse that is worn out and overused. That's where the word comes from. To be jaded means you've been badly treated so long that you're over it. You're just done. And it's so sad that in the church, we have accidentally, I think, stolen the power of this teaching. We talk in detail about the past of God's cosmic order of authority. And we, so again, just understand, of course, there's nothing about this teaching that is about absolute submission. Of course not. That is not biblical. It's not a biblical principle. You can go back and listen to that. We talked about the government We talk about governing authorities. God has created the authority structure in the universe, and there are certain authorities that God tells us we should follow, but never at the expense of following Him. Maybe the shorthand of it is this simple. We do not sin in the name of submission. Never. Think about this passage. He's saying, likewise, wives, submit, subject yourself to your husbands, to your own husbands. And then he's going to talk about the fact that these wives are converts to Christianity, and their husbands aren't. Are the wives submitting everything to their husbands? Well, apparently not. They're not submitting to who he thinks God is. See, there's a higher authority structure, and that is God first. We never sin in the name of submission. Never. If your husband were to ask you to do something that is sin, your correct answer is no, not doing it. I can't submit to you and not submit to God. That's not how authority structures work. Absolute submission is never part of that to anyone but God. This passage also isn't about a reduction of influence. Consider that this is again about Peter telling wives how to influence their husbands to become believers. Think how common it would have been in this first century. This is only a few years. This is maybe 30 years, maybe, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How many times was a family divided by one convert? That you had a wife and attended to be wives early on, right? That's just a guy thing. Sorry, it's just you know we have we have a hard time not being right. Anybody ever picked up on that? We have a hard time not being right, and so that's what I've always believed. This must be the truth. You're telling me, I'm, and so it would be t- women are, are seem to be it easier for many women to say, "Oh, that sounds right. I'll I'll change my thinking in regards to that." And so now she has she is a convert, and her husband is not. What do you do with that? Well, Peter's saying you influence him. And you lead him to conversion. How do you do that? He's got some ideas. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, or the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So this first section here that Peter's going to say is you want to influence your husband through an overarching concept that we call modesty. The Latin word is essentially modesty. It's where we get that word. It means a sense of measured honor. The proper honor for the proper things. That's what modesty means. And he is saying, wives, your modesty is going to be a powerful influencer over this man. Now, we simplify modesty to mean like you don't wear a two-piece bathing suit. I mean, we simplify it, way oversimplify it. The concept here is proper honor. So let me talk about honor for a second. Um, Honor is closely related in the Christian world or in the Jewish world to the concept of sacred, that you honor something as what it is, sacred, common, or trash. Those are kind of the three breakdowns, sacred, common, or trash. Often the church's response to the world telling us something is common is to say, no, it's trash, which is almost always wrong. We do that badly. We've done that about sex for for, for decades. Um, That's a mistake. That should never be our stance. This is trash. So, paper plate, nothing special, disposable, right? I mean, it's not trash yet. I haven't used it. But I'm going to use it. I'm going to eat on it, and I'm going to throw it away. It is entirely disposable. This is how often the, when the church responds to something that, that, the, that the world does, we, we default to this. No, nope, bad, trash. Stay away from it. Bad. Don't do it. Right? Just say no. That's the, that's the principle we get. And so it's bad, stay away, don't talk. The amount of division created in families and homes in regards to topics like sexuality, like modesty, that were created by the church are innumerable. There's still best-selling Christian books out there about marriage that are a nightmare. I, I would love to like go buy them all and burn them. Like I, I have seen so many marriages traumatized by them, um, and, and they're all in the name of Jesus Christ. I am sure the authors are great people. They just shouldn't have written those books. This is a... This is often where we get, and the division created by, in youth groups around the country, even when I was a kid, many of you remember that, right? So when everything became common, when the world was like, no, no, sex is common, it's everything, it's nothing special, it's blah, 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 and the church said, no, it's bad, it's trash, like, well, that was a bad idea, that was the wrong direction to go with it. So if something's trash, you just get rid of it when you're done, right? You just toss it, Nothing special about it, you don't care, I don't care what happens to it, it makes no difference to me, right? This is common, if you're at the leg home and, you're, and you come for a common meal, you're just going to make a sandwich, We get some pasta, and you say, grab a plate out of the cabinet, it's, this is one of your two or three options that you can grab, right? We go through a set of these or something like this every two or three years. The kids break them or lose them or or, or whatever. It just happens, right? There's nothing special about them. If it, I mean, they're, they're fun, you know, whatever. But when, they, when if they break or if they go away, no one cries a tear about it, right? We're not, we're not concerned about it. We just... We just, buy, we just go to the store and buy another set for a little bit of money, right? There's nothing all that special about them. I'm going to drop it here in a second. Here's what's different. With that, I don't care what happens. With this, I hope it doesn't break. I mean, if it does, that's fine. That's okay. I don't want it to, but it's okay. See the difference? Common's like, I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things, right? So it's going to not break. See, good. We looked out. This is Ginger's grandmother's china. Okay? <laughs> This is sacred. It's special. The paper plates, they sit out on the cabinet. The, the everyday wear, the common, they sit in a cabinet with all kinds of other stuff just stuck in with them. Right? The kids can get those. These are in a special place in a special drawer that the kid knows they're taking their life in their own hands to even come near. Right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't go near Lady Baker's China. You just don't do that. Um, it's got a strong glaze on it. I can't tell if it's bone china. You're supposed to be able to see through your, but it's got a glaze, so it's reflective, so I can't really tell. But it's, it's very fragile. I don't know how many sets of it we have, but this is very special. This morning when I asked for an example of china, Ginger handed this to me and said, this is very careful, be, be very careful with this, right? This is special to me because she knows me, right? And she knows it's not safe to hand things like this to me. She's, she's over there panicking now at the way that I'm holding it and spinning it around, right? This is sacred. Girls, when we tell you to cover up your body, the private parts of your body, the sexually explicit parts of our lives, it's not because we think it's trash. And the world says, oh, you're saying it's trashy. No, dear, what we're saying is it's treasure. You don't set that kind of thing out on the counter. Ginger's a master of teaching this to girls, the concepts of modesty. It's, it's really a beautiful thing when you consider, no, no, treasure I'm not telling you it's trash. I'm telling you it's treasure. I'm telling you it's special. I'm telling you it's sacred, created by God for something incredibly special. It's not something that you throw down there. I'm not going to throw this one down on the ground. I'm going to set it gently back on the table. It's special. It needs special treatment. It deserves special treatment because it's special. That's all that modesty means. And by the way, modesty is not a female thing. Modesty is for all of us. It is a concept that we all have to grab onto, meaning that we put it in its right place. This passage clearly, Peter is saying clear, merely or primarily, does not mean none of this. So when he says the braiding of hair or the wearing of gold jewelry, he doesn't mean none of that. Because if you take it that way, you're, you're actually going to create a really weird teaching. If you say it's none, no braided hair, no putting on of gold jewelry, and no clothing to wear that last one's going to throw off the whole modesty thing, right? <laughs> Clearly, this is a question of merely or primarily, meaning don't build your identity on this. If, if a woman comes into therapy and she's built her identity on the fact that she is ugly, which happens all the time, she's built her identity on the fact that she's ugly, and you sit there going, no, no, you're beautiful. If you're talking about physical beauty, if I were to help a, a lady move her foundation of her identity from being ugly to making the foundation of her identity that she's pretty, have I helped her? I have not. Our physical attractiveness is not worth building an identity on, whether it's high or low, whether what other people think of it or not. It's still a terrible foundation for an identity. It doesn't make any difference whether or not you are strikingly beautiful or or horrifically, uh, uh, unthinkably ugly It's either way, you don't build your identity on that. That's not the source of your value. It's not even, shockingly, the source of your beauty. And that's what Peter wants you to hear, especially to the ladies. This can get so ugly when it's out of place. Any of you ever experienced this in the churches you grew up in? The church was largely a fashion show. It was an opportunity to show off your new clothes or something like that. Man, that's part of why we, we have a casual, sacred attitude here. We're casual about us. We're sacred about Jesus. That's part of how we come at this. It's modestly, modesty applies directly to men and women, putting the proper thing in the proper place. Think about Paul's words to Timothy. Listen to this. By the way, this is a passage that some of us need to hear. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, if you build your identity on your physical appearance, especially at the expense of your spiritual maturity, you're making a huge mistake. I know that there are people in the room, especially with the youth here and such, that they're at the, they're at the prime. Right? They're as beautiful as they're going to get. This is it. Enjoy it for the five seconds while it lasts, right? <laughs> Do not build your identity on that. You watch Hollywood and watch how their lives are devastated by not the idealization of physical beauty, but the idolatry of it, the idolizing of it. In our culture, we don't idealize physical beauty. We idolize it. We will pay you millions upon millions and upon millions of dollars to look good in our culture. We idolize it. And so they start having to spend millions upon millions to try to maintain that at the expense of their own sanity, much less their spiritual health. We don't fall into that. It is easy for a woman's identity to fall into her physical beauty. It is easy for a man's identity to fall into his physical strength. Both are a mistake. as anything other than a descriptor. There's nothing wrong with it, but it can only describe you. If you let it identify you, good luck with that. It's not going to last Instead, what's the answer? What should we build our identity on? Godly character. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. A gentle and quiet spirit. Okay? Who hates this verse? You see a show of hands. Who hates this verse? Okay? No, men men don't typically raise their hand on this verse. Here's what's weird to me about that. Does it say, but let your adorning be the, hidden person, of a heart of the a hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious in women? It doesn't say that. Okay, so the context is clearly to wives. The teaching is to wives. But the passage does not indicate that God finds this beautiful only in one of the sexes. It's that God finds this beautiful, period. Maybe men should be striving for a gentle and quiet spirit as well. What do you think? Well, gentle means meek. It's used all through it is one of the most common words character words used in the New Testament. Gentle, meek. It's a, it's a great it just means someone who places their power in God's hands. Someone who has a controlled sense of power. They use the least force necessary. They know how to be gentle. That's all that the word there means. Quiet means tranquil, at peace. Quieted is a better word. It has nothing to do with the volume of your voice inherently. What it means is someone who, the, the literal word, this may help you, means stay seated. When others are panicked and jumping around, you're tranquil. When everybody else is freaking out, you're not. If that's the picture. Maybe the character of kios uh, uh, is the word, and it just means someone who is an agent of peace. You create peace around you. Do you not like the verse because you don't think it's you? It may not be, except in the identity sense, because it's something that Christ creates in us. We're a new creation, and we bear that image. So first, don't forget about the distinction between identity and behavior. This is us. We've been called to this. We've been made this. These are fruit of the Spirit, peace and gentleness. Can I, so I want to repeat that first. But this isn't just about being a woman. I want to give you proof for this. This is something that is a positive character trait in the disciples of Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 1-3. through three. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Not the exact same Greek words, but very similar principles. One of the words is the same. Another commentator makes this claim. I don't know if this is true, so I've got to to eventually research this. That for all the times that Jesus gives himself a title or a name, the commentator claims that only once does Jesus describe his own character. I don't know if this is true or not. I've got to look it up. Lots of titles, lots of names, only one time for character. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This idea of being gentle and peaceful is not a female thing. It's a disciple thing. It's not just a wife thing. It's a disciple thing. It's a husband thing. How fascinating if we had a room full, a church full, a culture full of men who could be described as gentle and at peace. What a great testimony that would be. Just as great a testimony if we had a church full of women who were gentle and at peace. That's a, that's a powerful testimony. When the rest of the world is freaking out, when the rest of the world is just breaking stuff, bulldozing through everything, and as a church we were able to say, no, we're good. I mean, we're scared, but we're good. I mean, we're, we don't know what's going on, but we have confidence in something else. We have a confidence in something that gives us peace and gentleness. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. In other words, this was how they showed off. Not with braided hair, not with gold jewelry, but they showed off with the way they treated their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So obviously, if you... This is, it's really hard to get out from the authority structure picture when, when Peter throws this part in. Wise are being encouraged and challenged to embrace, not merely capitulate to this model. But it feels so outdated, the word Lord feels so outdated to us that we're embarrassed that it's in the Bible. I am. I'm embarrassed that it's there. And catch this. This example was 2,000 years old when Peter wrote it. Now it's 4,000 years old. This example of Sarah is a 4,000-year-old example. Peter offers a model. Sarah, a very, very Jewish reference. The apex female for the Jewish people. Sarah's daughters. If you want to be Sarah's daughters, then you're going to need to model some things. What? Here's what it is. It is a trust that surrenders her fears to God. A trust that gives her own well-being to God. And it is showed, one of the places where her trust in God is showed off like braided hair and gold jewelry is in the way she serves her husband, her devotion to her husband. Sarah's example, catch this, Sarah's example of arraying herself for war alongside her husband is being talked about 4,000 years later. How's that for a testimony? That's amazing to consider that we're talking about the example she set for millennia later. Sarah called Abraham Lord out of her trust in God. Not Abraham. This isn't an allegory. You could take it literally literally. I believe it is entirely appropriate for a wife today to show this kind of respect and devotion for her husband. Maybe not in this exact way, but to show that same kind of devotion is what Jesus modeled for us. It's exactly the picture being created here. Again, this is not her heart is revealed in this, not Abraham's worthiness. This is important to understand. Her calling Abraham Lord says what about Abraham? nothing. It says something about Sarah. She trusts God well enough to be that over the top. A man who readily submits to God is not that hard to submit to. This is going to be part of the teaching, I'm sure, next week. I've done it several times. I've had to submit to many different men in my lifetime, bosses and parents and all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, submitting to a man who submits to God is not that hard. I mean, it's not like I want to do it, but it's not nearly that hard, right? Submitting to a man who doesn't is a nightmare. Men, let's not make it a nightmare. Husbands, let's not make it a nightmare. If we're submitting to Christ, we're probably going to be pretty easy to submit to. A trust that gives her the freedom to surrender to God and hope in God and to show off with that devotion, that's awesome. Lordship comes from the wife here, not Abraham. Submission of her heart, not just action. This last phrase Afraid of frightening things that we see in the past. It probably indicates a sense of confidence in God, even when dread sets in. Even there's a sense of dread, just like Sarah faced many, many times, I don't have to give in. And keep in mind, Peter is writing too. Think about this. Unbelieving wives in a culture that largely treats them as property, and she believes something different than her husband about the purpose and meaning and value of life and who God is. Do you think she had anything to be afraid of? But she didn't have to be afraid because her confidence was in God. Not in Abraham, not in her husband's. It was in God. And we need help, and we need to grow, and we need accountability, and we need encouragement. Every one of us does to live out the kind of radical teaching that we get in Scripture.